This morning we're going to be continuing our series called The Upside Down Kingdom, looking at the Gospel of Luke. And it's called that because Jesus flipped our way of doing things upside down. And what we're talking about today may be one of the pinnacles of that. So this past weekend was a big weekend for me. I don't know if you know this. I think I may have said this once up here, that I'm a really big Kansas City Chiefs fan. So this last week was huge, seeing the Chiefs win another Super Bowl. I honestly didn't think they would win one in my lifetime. So it's really cool to have a team that's this good consistently. But as I was celebrating the big win, and this is part of why I'm giving this up for Ash Wednesday, I turned to Twitter because, you know, that's what people do sometimes, and I immediately regretted it. Turns out, sports can be pretty divisive. I saw a lot of division, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of accusations all over the place. I saw Eagles fans being mean to Chiefs fans. I saw Chiefs fans rubbing it in the face of Eagles fans. I saw a lot of complaining and division about the halftime show and about the commercials and yada, yada, yada. There was a lot of division. It turns out people don't think the same way about stuff. Who would have thought? <laughs> but whenever I check Twitter, I normally see how much the world likes to draw lines of division with one another. More seriously, we love dividing ourselves. Do you vote red or blue? Or maybe purple, making both sides mad. There's another line. Do you want to go to a primarily white church or a primarily black church? There's another line. Do you want to go to a church where everyone is under 50 and you have all the fog machines and the light shows? Or do you want to go to a church where everyone's over 50 and it's a more traditional experience? There's another line. It's our desire for tribalism, and that largely just means the desire for us to want to stick with the people that look like us, that think like we do, that act like us. That has created injustice, and it's created this us versus them paradigm, or maybe more accurately, an us being greater than them paradigm. And boy, does Jesus have something to say about that. We may draw lines in different ways that try to divide us, but Jesus is the great eraser of those lines. In our world, human beings, especially in our culture today, have a desire to want to be heard. People are caring a lot about civil rights in our day and equal opportunities. And the truth is, Jesus beat us to it thousands of years ago. Today, we're gonna to be looking at six areas that Jesus brought equality whenever the world draw, would draw lines of division and inequality. For example, these six are that he bridged the divide of one's sex, one's race, one's class, one's age, one's ideology, and then the divide that we love to make between us and our enemies. Today we're gonna be looking at how Jesus forever changed human rights and dignity and how Jesus is the great equalizer for this world. Let's begin with the first on that list. Let's talk about women in the first century day. During the time of Jesus, women were undeniably seen as second class or third class, if that's even possible. In the Greco-Roman world during the time of Jesus, the most common role that we find for women in literature was that of a prostitute. In that culture, women couldn't vote couldn't own land, they couldn't inherit resources from their family. Their place was in the home and their only purpose was really to raise kids. 
And female children were at a high risk of being abandoned at birth because families didn't want them. And it wasn't much better in Jewish culture in that time either. It was really tough being a woman in that day. Largely, women were supposed to be private and not seen. And whenever they were in public, they had to be heavily, heavily veiled. So this is a little writing from the Talmud. Uh, and this comes from the writings of rabbis a couple of centuries after Jesus. And this comes similarly from the, the same stream of the Pharisees. But we see this quote, wrapped like a mourner. So that's in re reference to what they would look like, covered completely, basically. Ostracized from all people and incarcerated within a prison. That doesn't sound very favorable to me. The ideal role for women was to be in the home and going outside was only for rare events like a funeral or a wedding or something like that or religious gatherings or out of absolute necessity to provide for their family if there was no one else who could. And they couldn't really be business people either. They couldn't engage in any level of trading unless the circumstances were dire and they had to. For example, from a Jewish writing of that time, this was sort of the expectation. It is the way of a woman to stay at home and it is the way of a man to go out in the marketplace. And a common word that was associated with prostitutes of the time were those who went abroad, those who were outside of their house on a consistent time or consistent enough times. And women had no ability or say to get a divorce at all. That was all in the man's hands. And there was a rabbinic school at that time that thought men could get a divorce for something as trivial as the wife burning the food. Also, a woman's testimony in court didn't count because they weren't seen as trustworthy sources, which was something else denied for Gentiles, something else denied for minors and anyone else that the Jewish authorities would consider undesirable. And this is maybe some of the worst stuff. The Talmud argues this. Anyone who teaches his daughter Torah is teaching her promiscuity. Women in this society were extremely illiterate since the rabbis didn't see it as necessary or wise for women to learn the scriptures. Another thing was women were separated from men in the temple. They could only go into the women's court, which was not something that was present in Solomon's temple. It was addition that was later. And they couldn't pray in public in the temple. And all this makes me think about Peter's response to Jesus whenever he's talking with the Samaritan woman. He's not shocked by the fact that he's talking with a Samaritan, which was a rival of the Jews at that time. He asked, why are you with a woman? Why are you talking with a woman? That goes to show you what the culture thought of women in this time. And though society treated women as second class, Jesus really changed the game on this one. It is impossible to read the book of Luke and miss how much of an emphasis Luke makes to give credit and attention to women. You see this from the opening chapters. You see this at the end of the Bible, or not the end of the Bible, the end of Luke. You see this with Elizabeth and Mary, and Mary having a song of hers being recorded and immortalized forever in Scripture. You see Anna, the prophetess. You see an entourage of women following and supporting Jesus, right? helping provide out of their own means, engaging in a level of commerce when they weren't supposed to and in a public way when they weren't supposed to. And then whenever all the hard stuff was happening with Jesus, while all his apostles abandoned him except for John, women were there for him at the crucifixion. 
Women were there tending to the body. And ultimately, this is one of the most crazy, radical things about all of this, is Jesus entrusted one of the most important messages, which is the witness of the resurrection, with women. Whenever their testimony didn't even count. But Jesus thought it did. And this is something that historians has helped add to the credibility a little bit of the resurrection story. Because if you're trying to fabricate a story, you wouldn't want to make women be the carrier of a, a witness like that, right? That wouldn't make sense. And maybe the most radical thing of all, and this is really easy to overlook, in Luke 10, in Luke 10, starting in verse 38, it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. In this situation, Martha was upset, and I'm sure on a personal level she was upset because she wanted help with all the stuff she was doing. But she also knew the, the role for Mary is not what she's doing. The role for Mary is to be helping Martha. But here's what's so radical about this. The expression of sitting at one's feet in Jewish culture is one of being a student of a rabbi. And we know what the Talmud says, right? It's foolishness to teach your daughter the Torah, to teach your daughter the scriptures. But hear Jesus' response to Martha. Martha, Martha, you were worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary chose what is better. He sees value in teaching the scriptures to women and teaching them to be his disciple. Because the idea of a student is to follow and teach and do as the rabbi does. And he sees value in it whenever the rest of the world didn't. It's really crazy. And then in the book of Acts, we see this continued in the church, right? You see a lot of women prophesying in public whenever they weren't supposed to. You see them being house church leaders. You see them helping teach others about God, like what Priscilla and Aquila were doing uh, with Apollo, or Paulus, sorry. Paul argues for the husband to also be submissive to the wife, wife as we submit one to the other, right? That is a radical teaching for that time. And it didn't stop after the time of the apostles. In AD 112, Pliny, who was a Roman governor, who was kind of tasked with keeping the Christian religion to the side, he speaks of interrogating two female church leaders who were deacons of their respective church. This is a quote of it. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female deacons. But I discovered nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition. You see the mantle being passed on from Jesus. A care and love and dignity and respect that is placed on all women. So Jesus really started caring about women's rights way before anybody else did. Another divide that Jesus broke was the racial or ethnic one. In Luke 13, Jesus says people will come from the east, west, north, and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. That means it's all over the world, right? People from everywhere coming together. This is a very inclusive message. 
the parable of the banquet, it implies that God is inviting everybody over to dine with him because the original people that he invited didn't want anything to do with it. They, they made excuses and they left. In Luke 24, Jesus fulfills scripture saying, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. This is a gospel for everyone. This is a gospel for all people and all nations and all people groups. And this is what we see in Acts. Paul is consistently trying to reach Gentiles, AKA non-Jewish people. He's trying to go to the ends of the earth with this message because it's that important and it's that inclusive. If you look at the book of Romans, Romans 16, there are 29 names mentioned in Romans 16. 19 of them are Greek, seven are Jewish, three are Latin. It is a multi-ethnic group. Also, we read in, in Revelation, in heaven, there are people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? God is one that values diversity. He values people that look different. And we see this in the early church as well. One of the critiques that I've heard about Christianity from critics of Christianity is that it's primarily a white man's religion. And that is so not true. First of all, because the founders are Jewish. Secondly, because if you look in the centuries after it, there were a multi-ethnic plurality of voices. Thinking about Augustine, he's probably one of the top three to five most influential Christians to have lived. He was from Hippo, which that is where modern day Algeria is. Also, Athanasius, who is a big figure in developing Christian orthodoxy, he was named by his opponents in a kind of mean sort of way. They called him the black dwarf because he was short and very dark skinned, right? This is, this is not a religion that is founded just with one ethnicity in mind. This is for all people. Jesus really helped erase that racial divide. Another line of division that we saw Jesus erase was the, along the line of class. Those who were poor or sick or had some level of public sin, the rest of society would ostracize them. They wouldn't want anything to do with those outcasts. They didn't want to be unclean. But Jesus demonstrated that he cared and loves those deeply that society rejected. If they were sick, he healed them. He wasn't afraid of uncleanliness. If people were poor, he loved them and cared about them and said, blessed are you. To the worst of sinners, people like tax collectors and the prostitutes, he dined with them. And I'm thinking also about the, the woman caught in adultery in John 8, right? Whenever everybody was ready to stone her, because of Jesus, she walked away not being condemned. But simultaneously, he dined with the wealthy and the religious elites as well. Why? Because Jesus loves all people. And his followers did the same thing. There were many class problems in all the churches that Paul talked to, right? That Jew-Gentile divide is a legitimate one. The, the wealthy-poor divide, that was a legitimate one. But the thing was, and this is so groundbreaking, that the elite in status were fellowshipping together with the poor, the lowly, the slaves of society. That's church. And speaking of taking care of those cast aside or sick, it's because of Jesus' impact that Christians later developed the first hospitals to take care of those people that people would push to the side. Jesus erased the lines of class or status. 
Another divide that Jesus tore down was age. At that time, children were supposed to be pushed to the side. They were greatly overlooked by other people and seen primarily as a retirement plan or to carry on their family's name or legacy. In Greco-Roman culture, it wasn't rare for people to just abandon their child if they didn't want them in the dumps or the street. But with Jesus, he demonstrated that they weren't supposed to be pushed away and pushed to the side and silenced, but accepted and in some ways followed by us. Jesus welcomed all children that came to him and argued that all of us should be like them. And there's something so special about the innocent faith of a child and their heart that they have towards God. It makes me think of the prayer by Clyde a a few weeks ago. It was so beautiful, so pure, and it was holy, right? There's something special about that. In case you don't know, Clyde is a a little one um, who is Paige's, hand over there, (laughs) uh, son. And it was a beautiful, beautiful prayer. Like that is the sort of thing that we want to exemplify. And then Christians continued to care for children, particularly those who were abandoned on the streets. There were many accounts that testified to this, right? That children would be picked up by Christians and brought into their homes and into their families and adopted into a loving home. That was some radical stuff. And that spirit is what led Christians to creating the first orphanages to take care of those kids pushed to the side. And on the flip side, Jesus gave great dignity to the elderly. Whenever the world might pass over them or forget about them, Jesus treated his elders with dignity. Largely his mother, right? You see it in whenever he turns the water to wine, maybe doing things a little bit faster, or not his timing, but his mom's like, yeah, you could really help him out. He's like, okay, fine. He listens to his mom. And then on the cross, he is looking at John and says, hey, take care of her, right? Jesus loves the elderly, and he, he gives several examples of widows being the type of people we want to be like. And I think about James 1, too. It says true religion is to take care of the widows and the orphans, <laughs> right? That's what we should be doing as a church. It's very clear to me that Jesus loves all ages. Another divide that Jesus tore down was the ideological one. Or another way to say that is maybe the political one. Jesus spent his time with both Pharisees and Sadducees. And they didn't really like each other at all. The Sadducees believed that only the Torah was scripture. The Pharisees believed that even their traditions basically were scripture. Which was kind of a little bit of a new idea. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Which was kind of a new idea. And the Sadducees believed only the first five books were legitimate, right? And both of them had political aspirations. And I've heard people try to make the claim like, oh, that side lines up more with the far left, that side lines up more with the far, whatever. I don't know if, I don't think you can clearly divide that. But the point is, Jesus didn't get snugly next to either side, right? He showed a new way, a third way, the kingdom way. Jesus showed that the kingdom tears down the barrier between political ideologies And we see his followers bridging that ideological, political divide all the time in all the churches because what Paul is dealing with is polytheists that want to bring some some of that into Christianity. He's dealing with Jewish sympathizers that thinks we need to bring circumcision together. We're dealing with people who are uh, Gnostics 
that believe that the flesh and spirit are separated from each other and the, the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. He's dealing with all these different ideologies, but in all of this, all of these backgrounds, all these political beliefs are unified under the new banner of Christ. And lastly, one of the ways that Jesus totally changed our perspective is with our enemies. While the rest of the world follows the law of Hammurabi, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the way the world thinks justice ought to operate is that, hey, you should always conquer your enemies. You should crucify those criminals and teach them to never mess with us again. Label them a heretic. Defame their name. But Jesus says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's radical. And that, that was Jesus in his whole ministry. He turned the other cheek. He didn't retaliate violence with violence. He was mocked and crucified. And while people were making fun of him as he was suffering on the cross, he praised for his enemies saying, Father, forgive them. And my goodness, did that spirit of Jesus rub off on the early church. They were persecuted heavily, heavily after the time of Jesus. Every apostle except for John was murdered. There are countless stories of people being thrown into gladiatorial games, being burned alive or being crucified, but because their Lord turned the other cheek, they did the same. And after 300 years of returning evil with love, they ultimately won over the Roman Empire which then that created a whole other slew of problems and a lot of horrible atrocities that came whenever Christianity became the religion of the empire. But nonetheless, Jesus' impact on this world and dealing with his enemies is unquestionable. Think about somebody that our country likes to lift up in Martin Luther King Jr. Part of why his message was so effective is because he followed in the steps of Jesus in this. He cared about everybody's rights, including the rights of his enemies. He loved his enemies. And that came because of Jesus. The way of Jesus changed everything. In other words, where Jesus, or where people drew lines, Jesus erased them. And to be clear, I want you to hear me say this. Whenever I say erase lines, I don't mean that Jesus is saying everything goes. Like everything is okay. Truth is still important, no doubt. But what he is doing is removing the status games that we play with one another. Because he gives dignity to every single person. I think about what Paul says to his church in Galatia, separated by the Jew-Gentile divide. He says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. By the way, that's all. And I checked the Greek, that word means all. All children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's that racial divide. There's neither slave nor free. There's that class divide. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection is level everything. He is the great equalizer, for we are all equal before the foot of the cross. All of us cannot look down on somebody else because we think we have a better status than they do. Because we are all equally full of dignity. Because we serve a God that does not show partiality. 
that doesn't show favoritism. We serve a God who made everybody, including our enemies, in his image. And as we've talked about before, in God's very nature, in the triune nature, there is unity, diversity, and equality present. And that's why we see Jesus care so much about it, because he is the perfect revelation and representation of God. So what does this mean for us if Jesus was this way? This means we follow Jesus. This means we value and empower women in the gifts that God has given them. This means we care about racial justice and go out of our way to love those who look differently than we do. This means we love the immigrant or refugee like we would any other American. This means we love and care for the poor and rejected of society without antagonizing everybody who is rich. This means we care deeply about children and trying to set up all the children that we can for a flourishing life while not neglecting the elderly and showing them that we love and care for them. This means that we love and treat people with dignity who think differently than we do, whether that's a different religion, whether that's across denominations, whether that's a different politic or any morals that we care deeply about. We can disagree with one another out of love and still not antagonize somebody else. This means that even in our enemies, we see God's heart for them and we treat them as loved ones of God, not as the evil monsters we wanna make them out to be. And if you don't wanna do that now, just know you might have a hard time adjusting to heaven because you're probably gonna be shocked who all is your neighbor. So let's ask ourselves, who are those that we treat with little to no dignity? Those that we think ill of, those that we want nothing to do with, those are the people that we need to, it's not an option, we need to see God's dignity in. Because the truth is, God so loved the world. Not just me, not just those who think like me, not just those who look like me, not just those who go to the same kind of church that I go to, not just those in this country, but God so loved the world. So may we do the same. May we show that love, that grace, that truth and kindness to the world, the same stuff that the Lord has shown us. If you have any needs today, anything that's going on in your life that you need prayers for, I want to invite all our shepherds to go ahead and take their places. If, if you have anything going on in your life that you want to celebrate, anything in your life that's going on that's hard, if there are people in your life that you see as enemies and you want to repent from treating them poorly and you want to make amends, come and talk to some of these people and pray with them. Because we really believe here that powerful things happen through the power of prayer. So do not miss opportunities like this. If there's something in your heart that you feel like you need to confess, you need to give over to God, if you need help in, do not hesitate. I've already think twice uh, went and asked for prayers from these people around this room. It is really beneficial and it helps change things. So after I pray and during this next song, go ahead and, and go to these individuals. Lord, we thank you so much that you're a God that sees dignity in every single person. You are not a respecter of persons, but you love all of us. You don't play favorites. You see dignity in the people that we don't. 
And I pray that you give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Give us the love that swells so deeply inside of you. We pray that we can be a church that is not known for bickering over minor stuff, but we can be a church that is known for our love of all people. A church that's willing to be in the same room with people we disagree with or fundamentally oppose on things, but we remain united in the banner of Jesus. Help us to stay unified. Help us to stay one. And help us to see dignity and the gifting and the worth and the significance in each person in this room, in this community, and in this world. We pray all this in your Holy Son's name. Amen.